In today's passage, we learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for sinners like you and like me. In verses 1 through 12, we're going to see that Jesus knows our greatest need. Jesus knows our greatest need. Working back through the passage, looking at verse 1, it says, When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. So they hear that Jesus went back home. If you weren't here for chapter 1, he's already been healing people. Words are getting out about him. So when people hear that he's home, they're like, we're going to see him. It's likely that they were actually at Peter's house when it says home. That was thought to be kind of the home base for the disciples. But people go in and they pack the place out. Now, this is a pretty good crowd, but I think you can still get in and out of the doors. I know we got like fire code restrictions. If we can't, we probably got a problem. But they were definitely breaking fire code. And all these people are around. Often the writer Mark, when he refers to crowds, he used them almost as a way to show that they're in the way of getting to Jesus. This comes up again in Scripture. Notice it says Jesus is speaking the word to them. That refers back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Those verses say, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, that is the gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word. This is his message. This is what he is speaking to them. Verses 3 and 4 continue. They came to him, bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Now, a lot of you may be familiar with this story. If you're not, that's okay. But a lot of you are, and you're probably waiting for me to be like, all right, now what I need you to do is go get your friends and do whatever it takes to bring them to Jesus, right? Because that's what we hear. Now, whether or not it's a good application, we can talk about later. But I don't think that's the main point that Mark's trying to get across in the whole of this passage. I think this happens to be a circumstance that is happening, and it is a wild circumstance. Think about it. If Jesus were standing up preaching much like I am now, and suddenly the roof starts opening up, it doesn't tell us that Jesus panics or looks around. I'm just telling you all, if the roof starts to open today, I'm going to be distracted until we figure out what's happening. Okay? Jesus is good. He's still preaching. These friends are doing whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. Because they think he can help him. Verse 5 says, Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if this is your first time hearing this story, or if it's your first time in a while looking at it, it should surprise you that that's what Jesus says first. Because when you bring a paralytic to Jesus, you expect him to heal him. Right? That's why they're bringing him. But Jesus knows this man's greatest need. He knows what's more important than his physical healing. He looks at this man and he sees a sinner in need of the grace of God. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if we see our greatest need. I wonder if I had asked you before this sermon, what do you need most today? If your answer would have been the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I need God to do something in my life to rescue me. Even if we've already received Christ, we say, I need God's grace to continue in this life. That is our greatest need. Not just to pay our bills. Not just to get a promotion in our jobs. Not just to be healed 
healed of physical illnesses, though there's not necessarily anything wrong with any of those things. And God can and is powerful enough to provide those things. But Jesus here shows that he knows our primary need. Now, some of you, if you're new here, you may be offended already. Because you're like, man, you keep saying we're all sinners. You keep talking about sin. What does that even mean? That's a church word, sin. The English word that we use comes from the idea of archery. If you don't know what archery is, like bow and arrow, right? You're aiming for a target. You're aiming for the center bullseye. And then when you would miss an archery, however much you miss by is how much you sinned by. So you sin by five inches, you're five inches off. Make sense? We're tracking? As people, we are aiming to be like God. And anything that is not like God is sin. Now that raises the bar. And you may say, no, I thought it was just when we do bad things or just when we break the law. Anything that is not like God is sin. Romans 15 says anything we do apart from faith is sin. That raises that bar, doesn't it? Now, even still, you may start agreeing with me on these definitions of sin. You're like, okay, we get it. We're all sinners. But we don't apply that to our daily lives. We don't live in that reality. I recently, I've been listening to podcasts more lately because I'm trying to be cool like some of you who do that. And I heard one where this guy talked about sin. And he said, do you ever have a moment where you lash out? Maybe a car cuts you off and you're like, I'm going to cut you off! Or something way worse that comes out of your mouth. Not that we would ever do that because we're church people. Or you have a moment that you go off on a family member or whatever, and then you have the audacity to say, I just don't know what came over me. That podcaster I was listening to said it really well and said, when you say, I don't know what came over me, you came over you. Your sinful flesh took over. The real you shines through. That's what happened. Because we are inherently sinners. I know it's Mother's Day, and it's not a good day to be like, man, you're saying that my little baby born is a sinner? Yes! We don't teach children to sin, and yet they do, don't they? Got way too many amens from moms now. <laughs> like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Kids are toddlers. You're like, did you take that? Who taught you to lie? When really, it comes from our flesh. Ever since Adam and Eve, all of us are sinners. Down to the very core of who we are. We like to forget that. We like to say things like, well, you know, most, you know pe people are mostly good, right? No. People are mostly evil. Apart from Christ, we are wretched creatures. Y'all are like, this is the lightest fire and brimstone sermon I've ever heard. This is reality, y'all. I'm not here to just guilt you into believing the gospel, but I am here to hit you with the facts. And I say this because I see it in the word and because I see it in my own life. I know my own heart. I know the world's not just made of good guys and bad guys. The world's made of bad guys. And, and girls, if that offends you. We're just bad. The one good guy volunteered to die for us. His name's Jesus. The rest of us are bad in need of a savior. And Jesus knew that about this paralytic. And he looks at him lying on a mat and says, son, your sins are forgiven. If I'm the friends, I'm mad. Like, okay, cool. Are you also going to heal him? And that's because we miss our priorities. We 
miss what Jesus knows is our greatest need. Jesus' words, though, didn't just influence the man and his friends. Look in verses 6 and 7. It says, but some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you catch what the writer Mark is doing for us there? The writer Mark is trying to get you, the reader, us, the readers, to answer that question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is Jesus, because he is the Son of God. Remember we said Mark's trying to prove that throughout his book. He is God. He has all authority. Authority has been handed to him, we find out in the Old Testament. I love verse 8. Love verse 8. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this, within themselves and said to them why are you thinking these things in your hearts Jesus can read your mind how about that so when we go back to that whole sinful talk he knows that thing that you thought but you didn't say oh my is right <laughs> yeah if you can't say amen say ouch that's what I hear he knows what's going on. This is a crazy thing to think about because Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, existing in this room with this paralytic and these Pharisees, he is aware of everything happening in all these people's lives at once. He is aware of all their thoughts at one time and has the awareness to pin the Pharisees who don't even say what they're thinking, these scribes of the Pharisees, but looks at them and says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? He continues in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Seems like a trick question, right? Because I can say either one, and neither one's going to happen. The point Jesus is making is whichever one he says happens. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks to the paralytic. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. Do you get what Jesus is doing here? They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, which one's easier, forgive sins or make him get up off this ground? And they're all like, well, you obviously aren't healing him. And Jesus says, yo, get up and go home. He's proving to them his authority to forgive sins. Which, what do they equate with? Being God. <laughs> He's showing right here, our series right now is more than a man. This is about as clear as you're going to get of Jesus showing, okay, you say that only God can forgive sins. Watch me do other things that only God can do to prove to you that I can forgive sins. He uses an odd title there too. He calls himself the Son of Man. Anybody notice that? This actually comes from the book of Daniel. He takes this title, and if you go to that passage in Daniel, you see that it actually talks about this Son of Man being given all authority. Jesus knew what he was doing there, putting these together. Now, he's going to use that title a lot in the book of Mark, because it was one that apparently was less offensive. If he had just called himself Son of God, immediately the scribes and Pharisees would have pounced and said, you're not God. But he says Son of Man here, and they don't put it all together yet. Later in Mark, as he uses it, he starts to say more about that passage in Daniel. But the whole time he's trying to teach him and point it out to him, hey, I'm the one that this whole book's about. 
I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been longing for. And I'm the one who comes and can tell paralytics to get up and walk. And I'm the one who comes and can forgive sins. It says immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. Now him taking the mat was just a nice thing, right? Because if I'm paralytic and I've been on a mat and I get up, I'm leaving that thing behind. Sorry about your roof. Sorry about the mat. <laughs> I can walk. But he picks up the mat and walks out. I love that it says in front of everyone. So it's something done in secret. As a result, they were all astounded, fair, and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. They think it's cool that Jesus did this neat trick. They think it's cool that he healed someone, and it is cool. It's an absolute miracle, but they miss what this sign points to. And that's that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. They missed that. Because they weren't focused on who Jesus is and what our greatest need is in light of him. Our greatest need is salvation that only Jesus can give. Our greatest need is forgiveness that's only found at Jesus' cross. I've heard some people ask me before, they say, well, Jake, why didn't God just forgive our sins? Why did he have to go through all this stuff, sending Jesus, him living without sin, and him dying in our place on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for us, and being buried three days, and, and being raised again? Why did all of this have to happen? Why didn't he just forgive us? And the answer is because God is just. God is a good judge, and a good judge does not wink at evil. A good judge does not just let evil slide. A good judge calls the guilty guilty. And yes, the cross is such a picture of love. And that is what we so often focus on. It is such a picture of love because God gives his only son in our place. It's a substitutionary, self-sacrificing love that should move us. But it's also a display of God's justice that he will punish sin. He will not just wink at it and give it a pass. Injustice will not stand. Because he is good and he is just. But now at the cross, Romans 3 tells us that he is both just and the justifier. That means he maintains the fact that he himself is a good judge and he justifies sinners. Because Jesus takes on our sin and we receive his righteousness. It's not like God just looks at us and says, hey, believe in my son. He didn't do anything. Just believe that he exists, and I'm just going to wipe you clean, and you can just come live however you want for the rest of forever. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel is that Jesus died to save a people. He shed his blood to purchase a people, taking on their sins and paying the price of the sin of all who will trust in him. And at the moment of faith, we receive new life that begins now and goes on forever. Ashley, I love that you shared and were open with us. That testimony that, God, thank you for saving me, because that starts now. That means something now. When we say, you give life, when we sing that, that should stir something up in us, because he gives us life. In our sin, we're dead. 
last week I was visiting a church, and they did the same thing we do before service, where they circle up and pray, which I thought was awesome, because our church does that. But the guy next to me checks my pulse. And I was like, what are you doing? He said, I work at a funeral home. <laughs> I was like, well, am I okay? <laughs> yes, my pulse was still going, so that's good. But it made me realize, I know this guy who now checks pulses. Y'all, if he checks the pulse of a sinner who's dead in sin, it's not like you're half alive and like have problem with sin. It's not like sin's just a thing you're carrying around that you need to let go. It's like sin has murdered you and you no longer live. And you are wretched and you smell gross. Some of y'all are like, man, that really went down quickly. It does. Sin is horrible. And Jesus comes and makes us completely new. Gives us life and makes us completely clean. And then sends us forth to live for his glory. Even though we still have sinful flesh, even though the world around us still gives us temptation, even though Satan seeks the swiftest as wheat. Y'all, we have the power of God inside of us to live lives that glorify God. That doesn't come from us. That's a miracle of God. That's something that happens because of who Jesus is and what he's done. When he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you in power. And now all who believe receive the Spirit of God indwelling us and empowering us to live lives that glorify him. We have been forgiven. And we know that when we do sin, we can come back to him and confess. What marks an unbeliever from a believer? An unbeliever sins and keeps sinning. A believer sins and runs back to Jesus. We come and confess our sin to him. And we find forgiveness because of what he's done at the cross. Because of the authority that he has. You see, Jesus knows our greatest need. We find in these first verses. But in the back half of this passage, we find that Jesus calls us to a better way. Verses 13 through 17, Jesus calls us to a better way. The passage continues. says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. So Levi would have been a tax collector. And this is going to come up again in this passage, which is worth talking about. The reason tax collectors get picked on in Scripture is not because if you work for the IRS today, that's just awful. Okay? Now, some of you in the room are like, taxation is theft, and you think it's awful. That's your own political stuff. That's not biblical. Okay? You can work for the IRS and be a Christian. Fully believe that. At this time, especially for someone like Levi, who would have been Jewish. This was Matthew, by the way, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He had two names, as many biblical characters do. If you think that's weird, my birth name's Jacob, and people call me Jake. Pretty similar thing, okay? Y'all are like, Matthew and Levi? You'll figure it out later. Levi here is a tax collector. And the reason this is so bad is because as a Jew, that means you're working for the Romans. You're working for the people who are persecuting us. The people who have taken over our place. Not only that, but the way it worked then was that he would often take more than he needed to and keep it for himself. It was a common practice amongst tax collectors. In fact, Rome didn't punish their tax collectors. As long as Rome got theirs, you could do whatever you wanted with your power and position. So we find Levi here, and Jesus sees him, and he said to him, follow me. Follow me. 
He doesn't say, hey, Levi, let's, let's talk about some of those sins. Hey, hey Levi, I, you need to really adjust the way you're doing this. He says, hey, Levi, follow me. Leave that behind. Follow after Jesus. And what's really mind-blowing about this passage says, and he got up and followed him. He leaves his job behind, y'all. He leaves this tax booth behind and says, I'm following Jesus. Because Jesus is calling him to something new. The passage continues, it says, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, talking about Jesus, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. Notice again, you get that word follow. It's the exact same word there in the passage. What marks a disciple of Jesus is that we follow after Jesus. We are saved from our sin to follow after Jesus. A lot of Christians, too many Christians, maybe you, before looking at this passage, can't say what it is we've been saved from or what it is we've been saved to. We've been saved from our life of sin. And people say, well, well, Jesus loves sinners just like they were. Right, but it doesn't say that Jesus went and sinned with them. It doesn't say that Jesus went and applauded or affirmed their sin. No, Jesus went and saw them in their sin and said, follow me. And they did. They followed after him. They left it behind. What have you left behind? Christian, what's different in your life? Since you've become a Christian. If there's nothing, I'm concerned. If you claim to be a Christian and your life looks exactly like it would if you didn't have Jesus in your life, then you might not be a Christian. If you're here and you say, well, I'm not a Christian because so many Christians are hypocrites. First of all, you're right. I am a hypocrite. I often say things and do another, and there is grace for me too. Praise the Lord. There's grace for you as well. But sometimes you're right, non-believer who thinks Christians are hypocrites. Some people who go to church actually aren't even Christians because they don't follow Jesus. An unbelieving friend, my, my message to you would be, you can actually follow Jesus and find out what it means to actually follow Jesus today. You can find out more about that here today, what it means to actually turn away from sin and live a new abundant life of joy and hope and peace in Jesus. With Jesus calling all these people to a better way, eating with tax collectors and sinners, they're following after him. Of course, people are going to take note and have a problem with it. Verse 16 says, When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Apparently, they took this as, He's giving them approval. They took this as, He's applauding what they do. He's okay with their sin. And that wasn't what was happening. We see specifically that Mark says they were following Jesus, right? So they had left that behind. But when Jesus heard this, verse 17, he told them, and this is such a great line. This is one of the most quoted lines in all of Mark, and for good reason. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me tell you, first of all, what that's not saying. That does not mean that there are some people righteous enough who don't need a Savior. 
Jesus is not saying, hey, some of you are doing enough good that you don't really need to follow me, so y'all just keep doing what you're doing. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the posture of those who follow Jesus is a posture of those who recognize their own sin, who recognize their own unworthiness, who recognize their own inability, and follow after him and trust him to be our everything, to be our righteousness, to be our way to God, to be the end of our salvation, our hope and glory. We trust in him to be our savior and our sustainer today and every day. We trust him to be both our savior and our Lord because we recognize that we are sinners. When Jesus says, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's honestly a bit of a jab at the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees would have been the good religious people. They knew all the rules of the synagogue. They looked right at church. They knew all the words of the songs. But when they looked at people who sinned in ways differently than they did, they saw them as people to stay away from. They saw them as people who were unworthy of their time, unworthy of their love. Now, we would never do that today, would we? In our teaching team, one brother was so insightful, I would say wisdom from the Spirit, that he said, you know, there's a big election coming up next year, 2020. And in a church where we have white people and black people and brown people and yellow people and all, all, all kinds of colored people, People from different backgrounds, people from different political persuasions. Would it only take one conversation or one issue that maybe falls on an opposite side before we start looking at somebody else like a tax collector? Or do we realize our own sin and look at each other and say, you're a sinner just like me, and we both need grace? I think the sin of the Pharisees here is often my own sin. This passage speaks deeply to me because I became a Christian at a young age, around eight years old. And the sin that I most struggled with and actually didn't struggle with, but was most continued to be a slave to throughout high school and even early college was that I was judgmental. I was a Pharisee. I may not tell you to your face. In fact, if you go back and talk to people who I have since apologized to and sought to reconcile with, ask forgiveness of, those people were like, Jake, you were always nice to me. Remember, Jesus knows our hearts and minds, and in my heart and mind, I wrote them off. And I share that with you, church, not to glorify my sin, but to tell you it's an ugly sin, and it's a real sin, that I don't just come and point the finger at you, but as I read this passage, as I studied this passage, I felt conviction even over past sin. And if it were not for Jesus, I would wallow in that sin and feel terrible and think that there's no way I could ever be with God. And Satan would have us think that. But Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So when you know that you're a sinner, you know that Jesus came to save you. You're the very one Jesus came to save. As soon as you realize that sin, even if it's the sin of being a self-righteous Pharisee, you can repent. And you can find life and hope in him because he came to save all of us. Now, 
kind of like Jake, of course, you're telling us life, death, burial, resurrection. You're talking about sin and repentance. Your sermons are the same every time. You're right. I preach the gospel every time I'm up here. Do you know why? Because I'm like our sister Ashley. I was dead in my sin. I found new life. And I can't believe God did that for me. And he can do it for you too. He can do it for you too. If you will turn away from your sin and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, you can be made right with God and with God's people. You can be adopted into his family and receive all the benefits that Jesus receives as the Son of God. Christian brothers and sisters, do we recognize that we're only saved by grace? Not just theoretically, not just in our speech and in our songs, not just the right answers and huddles, do we really have any grasp of the fact that we cannot be saved on our own merit? Have we become self-righteous? Are we quick to see others as less than us? Professing Christian here today, is it possible that you've never truly trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord because deep down you've really been thinking, I can figure this out. I'll figure out a way to be good enough. I'll figure out the steps of being a Christian and I'll walk in those and that'll be enough. Because if you've been doing that, I have bad news for you first and then good news. The bad news is you're never going to make it. You're trying to swim to the moon, okay? A sinner trying to get back to God is like trying to swim to the moon. You physically cannot do it. But if we will throw ourselves at Jesus' feet, if we will turn away from our sin and rely fully on him, rest in his grace, rest in the truth of his life, death, and resurrection, then we can be saved. He takes our sin on the cross. We take his righteousness. If you're a professing Christian and you've never believed that, believe that today. Turn away from your sin. Unbelieving friends, do you see that we're all sinners? Even me. Do you see that you are a sinner before a holy God? And that apart from Jesus, we stand under his right judgment Jesus came to save sinners, but we must turn to him. We must follow him. We can do that today. I titled this sermon, Calling All Sinners. <laughs> Calling all sinners. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's easy to read a passage like this and separate people and say, well, there are sinners and there are righteous, self-righteous people like the Pharisees. Now, what Mark's really getting at is that every one of us are sinners and every one of us need Jesus. Do you know that and does that shape your reality today? How you view God, how you view yourself, how you view others? Because it should.